So I'll ask you if you would grab your Bible or whatever you're carrying today, if it's your phone. And by the way, if you could silence your phones, that would be a great thought. But if it's your phone or your iPad, let's go to the epistle of 1 John and to chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to supply you with one this morning. And there is that little note page in your bulletin. If you'll grab that as well, that will be of some help along the way. So allow me to begin by asking if we have anyone with us this morning who actually loves taking tests. Anybody? You, 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 you are that rare breed, that special kind of person that actually likes to take tests. If that's you, could we see your hand? Look around. There's not a single hand that went up, but really no surprise about that. You know, as a matter of fact, some people have been clinically diagnosed with a fear of taking tests. Guess what that is called? Testophobia. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm I'm serious. That's what it's called. Uh, The folks who have testophobia, they can become lightheaded. They hyperventilate. The room gets dark, kind of closes in on them the moment that the test gets passed out. Do you have testophobia, anybody? No, no. Okay. I recently ran across, though, some test questions that would surely strike fear into the heart of any test taker, even the ones that love taking tests. For example, from a final exam in a history class, describe the history of the American presidency from its origins to present day, concentrating on its social, political, economic, religious, and philosophical impact, not only on America, but on Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. Be brief and specific. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Here's one from a mechanical engineering class. The disassembled parts of a high-powered rifle have been placed in a box on your desk. You will find an instruction manual printed in Swahili. In ten minutes, a starved, fully-grown male lion will be released into the test room. Take whatever action you feel appropriate and be prepared to justify your decision. (laughs) Or how about this final exam from an Army field medic class? You've been provided with a razor blade, a piece of gauze, and two aspirin. Remove your appendix. Do not suture until your work's been inspected by your professor. You have 15 minutes. (laughs) Oh, man. And, you know, and, and even when we come across test questions that seem simple on the surface, we find that they're often not as simple as we might have thought. For instance, the answer to the question, how long did the Hundred Years' War last, Seems rather straightforward, doesn't it? But the real answer is 116 years. Uh, How about this one? Which country manufactures Panama hats? It's not Panama. It's Ecuador. Maybe Barbara would know that one, right? Yeah? Here's another. From what animal do we get cat gut used on violin strings? Not cats from sheep and horses, but you all knew that, right? Or which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? (laughs) November. Sure. Many test takers are glad to be out of school. Are you one of those? Yet as far as we try to get from the rigors of academic testing, church family, we still find ourselves uh, living lives that are filled with tests. Driver's tests, eye tests, maybe a treadmill test you took recently or lab tests, 
job-related proficiency tests. We've got a number of law enforcement uh, officers in our church family, and they have to test every so often at the shooting range just to be able to continue to do their job. Like it or not, tests are a part of our lives. And so with all of this testing going on, is there a test to determine whether a person is on the right track spiritually? A test to tell if a person is in a right relationship with God, is in a saving relationship with Jesus. Is there a test out there to help to be able to tell the difference between real Christians and Christians who are fakes or phonies or imitating the Christian? Well, the answer, of course, to that is yes, as we have been discovering, there is a test for this. Only this test is rather unconventional in its look and in its form. It comes to us, this test does, as the little five-chapter epistle of 1 John, written under the directing hand of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. And this is, as we've learned, the, the same John who, as a young man, was part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Now he's an 80-plus-year-old pastor who's fighting for the future of Jesus' church. False teachers, phony Christians, were infiltrating the church in the late first century and, and spreading false doctrines. And these phony Christians were, were living lives that were really a constant contradiction of what it really means to be under the lordship of Jesus. And they were doing all of this with a, with a cold, self-absorbed, indifferent lovelessness and attitude. And so Pastor John writes the, to, to genuine Christians in churches that he is caring for with the goal of providing them with a resource that they can use to prove or test the real Christian from the, the, the fake or the phony one who is infiltrating the church and bringing confusion and destruction. And so John would say, you can always tell the fake from the real by what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love. Those three ways. You can always tell the fake from the phony. By what they believe, how they behave, and how they love. So over and over in the course of the, this little letter that he writes, John says it. Here's what real Christians believe. Here's how they behave. And here's the way that they love authentically. And so anyone can take this Holy Spirit-inspired little test manual called 1 John and apply it to his or her own life or to the life of someone else. Know the real from the fake and the phony. 1 John helps us to be able to do that. Real Christians, he tells us in chapter 1, believe. They believe with all of their heart that God is holy, holy, holy. Verse 5, God is light. He is sinless perfection. It was beautiful on Wednesday night here at Awana. Uh, Alan Dutch had our fourth and fifth graders in, in this room, and he was talking about the holiness of God and did a marvelous job of just communicating to these kids of what it means for God to be holy. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian is to believe that God is holy. Real Christians believe that. Real Christians believe that they are not holy, right? 
Real Christians believe that they are sinners and and that sin has separated them from a holy God. That's verses 8 and 10 of chapter 1. They agree with God and they confess that that sin infects their lives and it deserves divine judgment. That's verse 9. They don't believe that they can live in any way that they want to. Um, they, They can't live for themselves. A real relationship means you're living for God. That's verse 6. Real Christians believe that God, through though holy, nevertheless wants a relationship with sinners. And so he sends Jesus' son into, a, into the sinner's world. Real Christians believe that Jesus is not only holy God, but that he is also holy man. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. And he's therefore able to be that willing sacrifice that steps into our world, steps into our place, dies for our sins on the cross, by shedding his own blood. That's verse 7 of chapter 1. These are all things that the Christian, the real Christian, believes. Do you believe these things? Yeah? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, which we shared together last time, real Christians believe that God received Jesus' death in their place as the propitiation. Do you remember that word? Yeah, that's that, that, that big, hairy, theological word. Remember that? It means the offering that Jesus became the offering that turned the wrath of God away from us and replaced his wrath with his favor. Yeah, real Christians believe that, that God did that. You believe that. You just said you did. Anyone who does not believe these things, we can say with certainty, is what? Not a Christian. Not real. They're not in a relationship with God. They are not saved. They are on a course that will lead them ultimately to an eternity separated from God unless their beliefs change. Agreed? You with me on that? Because you're, you're with First John on that if you, are, if you are in that place. All of this brings us then to chapter 2, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 today. As John shifts his focus now away from what we believe for a few moments to think about how we behave. Remember, that's another of the, the, the evidences of a real Christian is how we behave. Now, my ESV version, English Standard Version, does not make a paragraph break between verse 2 and verse 3. But in my opinion, my humble opinion, there should be a paragraph break right there. If you're carrying an NIV today, Uh, Those translators uh, uh, do see that paragraph break. And so John is going to introduce now a new thought, a a test or a proof of being real. And the proof is going to be obedience. A Christian is obedient to the known will and word of God. Now, here's how the Holy Spirit lays it out for us, beginning at verse 3. And by this we know... That we have come to know him. There you go. There's a test. There's a proof. That is, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's not real. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. And we're going to stop right there and take a look, a close look at these four verses. Over and over in this letter, John will say something like, this is how we can know. 
Because again, his whole reason for writing is to help us, to help Christians distinguish between the real and the fake, the genuinely saved and the Christian pretender. Maybe you'll recall his capstone statement that he lays over the entire letter at the very end in chapter 5 and verse 13. We actually noted this the first morning we were together. This is why John writes, he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, I want you to know that you know that you know that you are safe in Jesus, that you're the real deal. I want you to know that. Verses 3 through 6 are all about real Christians and their behavior. On your note page, obedience to God's will and word is a distinguishing feature of all followers of Jesus who are real. Obedience is a proof of real. Now, the word obedience doesn't show up even one time in these four verses. Did you notice that? I mean, that's the word I'm camping on here, but, but it's not here one time. However, in verse 3 and again in verse 4, John says, keep his commandments. What is that? <laughs> that's obedience, isn't it? And then in verse 5, keep his word. What is that? Well, that's obedience. And in verse 6, walk as Jesus walked. What is that? Yeah, that's actions. That's, that's obedience. Four times in four verses, the Holy Spirit says the same thing, but in different ways. But it's all about obedience. Verse 3 is a positive statement. Keeping God's commandments is one way that we will know that we have come to know him. Verse 4 is the negative side of of verse 3. If we don't keep his commandments, no matter what we may claim about knowing God, we are what? Liars. That's a pretty strong word. It's a word about being not real. In verse 5, obedience is part of our love language to God. It's how we tell him that we are in love with him, that we love him is by our obedience. And then in verse 6, real Christians desire with all their heart to be imitators of who? The person of Jesus, yeah. Uh, He loved the Father and he obeyed the Father and we want to imitate him. It's an act of obedience. And so John is confronting head on these false teachers. We know who they are. They're called Gnostics. And they're spreading this false doctrine saying that the material you and the spiritual you are distinct and separate entities. And since sin resides in the material you, um, but, but, but your spiritual you has no sin, then you can do whatever you want with the material you and it doesn't impact your relationship with the spiritual you, with God. So you can live however you want, says the Gnostic false teacher, and still be tight with God. That was the teaching of the day. But John framed, his, framed this issue really clearly back in verse 6 of chapter 1. Look at that again in your Bible. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... In other words, while we live a lifestyle marked by continual disregard for God's will, for his word, that's what the word walk means, the habitual practice of walking in disobedience. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and we do not practice the truth. 
God is light. In him there's no darkness and nor fellowship with that which is living continually in darkness. And so this test or proof of the real moves in a lifestyle direction with obedience being one of the reliable evidences that one is truly in a genuinely saved relationship with the Lord. Allow me to offer then a working definition of obedience since it's really at the heart of what John is talking about. So there on your note page near the bottom, what is obedience as John is using that thought? Well, obedience is a lifestyle that treasures God's will inwardly and fulfills God's word outwardly, thereby giving tangible evidence that one is real, that is truly transformed by grace through faith in Jesus. As listed below that, there are are just a few of literally dozens of passages that speak to the the place that obedience holds as as an evidence of, of real relationship with God. We'll just take a quick look at these. Uh, but there again, note that there are, there are dozens of verses we could have pulled out here. This one comes out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. And this is God who is relating this through Moses to the people of Israel. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and do what? Keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying those commandments. God says those who really love me will be commandment keepers, tangibly expressing their love for me by their obedience to me. Their their obedience is a reflection of their love. Those who don't love me will trample on my commandments. That's what God says. And so God is saying in the Old Testament, obedience is a valid indicator of what kind of a relationship you have with God. That's what he says. And then Jesus will give this kind of a a New Testament complement of that idea when he says to the crowds in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 and following. You'll know these words. You'll recognize them. Jesus said, you'll recognize them. You'll recognize people by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that those who are real produce what? They produce the good fruit, and the good fruit is obedience to the known word and will of God. Jesus will frame this in another way on another occasion. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, finish the sentence, church, and not do what I say? Is there a relationship between calling Jesus Lord and and obedience in your life? Man, you can't miss it in that verse. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says exactly the same thing. Again, under the inspiration of God's Spirit. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become what? You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching 
to which you were committed. Obedience, again, it's an indicator of real relationship. And our own Apostle John will, will say in chapter 5, verse 2, uh, here of, in 1 John, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Yeah. These and many other passes, brothers and sis- passages, brothers and sisters, they just speak of obedience to the known word and will of God as a confirming proof of a real relationship with him. And just to make sure there is no confusion, let's, let's be sure that we understand what obedience is not. If you'll flip your note page over, allow me to, to just address that for a second. Obedience is not the requirement that one must meet before one can be saved. Boy, we've got to get that, Right? It is the evidence of and not the condition for salvation. Is that important? That is hugely important. Obedience is not how one is eternally saved. One is saved by believing in who Jesus is and what he has done and appropriating him into your life by grace through faith. Amen? Amen. Salvation is never ever by obedience. It is so critical that this distinction be made. If we don't get this, we run the risk of becoming either religious or legalistic. And both of those are not good thoughts. Let me explain. Religion celebrates obedience as a condition for salvation. If someone were uh, ever to say that you're a religious person or, or that, uh, that you are religious, I would hope that you would pull them up short and say, you know what, that's really not true about me. I'm not a religious person because that's not what it is about. You say, I'm not a religious person. I am a person in a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus. Is there a difference? There is a huge difference. Between those two thoughts, religious people view obedience as the way to be saved. This was the black hole that Judaism had fallen into in Jesus' day, isn't it? This is what had happened. Uh, Do all the rules, said the Pharisees, the teachers of Jesus' day, and you will earn your place where? In heaven with God. Do the rules. It's all about the rules. That's what it means to be religious. Do you know what Jesus had to say about religion? He says to the Pharisees, and he says this to their faces in Matthew 23, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. <laughs> you look good on the outside, but on the inside you are spiritually dead. You are hypocrites. Fellow Christian, we are in a relationship, Right? We're not doing religion here on Sunday morning or or midweek with a life group or whatever you're doing. You're not doing religion. And and legalism, well, that's the other hazard of not understanding obedience to God rightly. Legalism tries to find assurance of salvation by performance rather than by simply resting in the work that Jesus has already done for you. With legalism, the focus is always going to be on me, what I do, not on what Jesus has already done. 
Agreed? If you've ever lived in the place of legalism, you know what a joyless tyrant it can be. Both religion and legalism miss the truth that a life of obedience to God's will and a life of obedience to God's word is the byproduct of God's grace in your life through faith in Jesus. It's not the way that you attain God's grace. It's never the way into God's heart. Obedience is always the evidence of his favor that has already been poured into your heart by grace through faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. For obedience to be pleasing to God, it has to come from that heart that's been made alive by him. This is why Jesus will say this in John chapter 14, verse 15. The night before he's crucified, here's what he tells his closest followers. If you, what? If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Real, God-pleasing obedience is an evidence of a relationship that's already in place. A love relationship. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying that obedience is the evidence of salvation. It's not the prerequisite to receiving it. And that is so, so important because apart from true faith in Jesus, obedience never lasts. Self-manufactured obedience will never be a long-term, consistent, sustained kind of obedience. Obedience that goes the distance, that really lasts until we see Jesus face to face or we see Him through the doorway of death. That comes because we love Him. Right? If you love Me, you're going to keep My commandments. That's going to be the evidence that we're really in relationship, our obedience. And obedience goes the distance when it's flowing out of a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. Let's think about that together. On your note page, let's think about obedience as a lifelong walk in God's direction. I love that as a, as a, as a definition as well of obedience. Before you and I were introduced to Jesus in a saving way, the sinful nature of our hearts led us directionally towards sin, towards self, and and really we could say towards idolatry, basically the worship of me. Before I knew Jesus, it was all about me, right? Yeah, that's life without Jesus. It's ultimately all about me. But through faith in Jesus, God does in me what I cannot do. He places on the throne of my heart a new king. And his name is Jesus. And he puts in me a new heart with new desires. And these new desires in my life send me in a new direction. Rather than living with the idolatry of me, a Christian's God and the Lord Jesus become our, our, our focus of worship. That's the transformation of the heart that comes through faith in Jesus. We go in a brand new direction. We were going one way. We come to faith in Jesus. And now we go in a new direction. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul writes about this. And I'll just put these up on the screen. But you're certainly welcome to turn your Bible to this place as well. Ephesians 5. Listen to what Paul says. To Christians in the church at Ephesus, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. 
Ah, there's our word. Lifestyle. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. In other words, when you come to faith in Jesus, you're going in a brand new direction. Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What Paul, what the Holy Spirit really is directing is, is, is saying here is that the real sons and daughters of God, the real ones, for them, obedience is nothing more or nothing less than a lifelong walk in God's direction. Would that describe your life today? A lifelong commitment to walk in God's direction. The Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, they become the trail map for you. For this amazing journey. And it really is. It's all about direction. It's not about perfection. And I'm going to. I'm just going to go in God's direction. But I know I won't be able to do that perfectly. But that's the direction. Like any hike that you and I might take. We sometimes get off the trail. We, we sometimes take wrong steps. However. We're still going overall. In the direction of God's will. And his word. Does that describe you this morning? As we all know, Idlewild is directly on the route of the Pacific Crest Trail, right? We see the PCT hikers come in to Idlewild by the hundreds every spring. And I've always thought it would be really fun to do that. That would be a fun adventure to actually become a PCT hiker. Now, If I was actually going to do that, I'd have to get Lisa to sign off, which could be significantly challenging. But I would have to I would have to commit to hike the PCT trail all the way. And uh, I would in order to be a PCT PCT -er and really be one, I would have to go down to the Mexican border, orient myself to the north. Head up the trail with Canada as my goal, right? That's it. I must, from the first day that I become a PCTer, determine that I am going to stay on a northerly focus. No doubt there's going to be a few wrong turns along the way, but my overall direction as a PCTer will always be north, right? Now, if I were to take this journey on, and Lisa agreed to it, And I say I am a Canadian-bound PCTer, and then I defiantly ignore the map. I disregard the trail. I blow off all the other PCTers, and I head south into Mexico. 
can I legitimately call myself a PCTer who is Canadian bound? No, I can't do that because a Canadian bound PCTer is always going north. Real Christians will always be heading overall, not perfectly, but overall, they are always going to be going in God's direction, right? Always. As they follow the trail map of His Word in obedience. Can I call myself a real Christian if the overall direction of my life and my walk is continually south, away from God? Can I? No. And that's John's point in verses 3 through 6. But as I make slow, steady progress towards God in obedience to His trail map, His Word, I can look back and I can see that my direction has so definitely changed from spiritual south to to spiritual north that I can know, I can really know in my heart that I am changed. I used to go south. Now I'm going north. I used to go away from God. Now I am going to Him. God has saved me through the blood offering of Jesus and set my life on a new course. I am on a lifelong walk in the direction of God and His glory is what I care about. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but generally I am walking away from sin and I am walking towards God. And how am I doing that? Through my obedience. This is why John can, can, can say in verse 3, And by this we know that we've come to know Him if we, say it church, keep His commandments. They're on your note page. Obedience assures us of real inward transformation. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. John's making an impossible to miss connection between the inward spiritual change that results from knowing knowing Jesus and the outward evidence of the change, which is obedience to God. You cannot miss the connection. Enduring lifelong obedience will always be from the inside out, won't it? It'll never be from the outside in. I will... I will do what pleases God because I have been changed by Him from the inside out. This is why religion and legalism will always fail. Religion and legalism attempt to change the outside by rules and principles, but leave the inside unchanged. How many of you have ever seen the the musical or the movie Les Miserables? How many of you? Yeah, most of you are familiar with this. The overarching story of that, of Les Miserables, is it's all about redemption. It is a musical, a movie about redemption. A thief, his name is Jean Faljean. He seeks to redeem his former life by caring for a little orphan girl. He sees this as, as, as his way to to cover the ills of the past and do it right. And and so he gives his life and his wealth to see this little girl grow up and and be happy. And it is a touching, touching portrayal. 
And I'll have to admit, I cried more than once listening to some of those powerful songs in that musical. And so I guess I must be going to heaven because I cried at Les Miserables. <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm not. <laughs> now, while there are several layers of redemptive theme within that story, if we think carefully about that, 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 that idea, that sort of redemption that Les Miserables is offering, is that an accurate portrayal of redemption and changed life? The hope that by, by a good life I can make up for a bad life. Is that accurate? Is that biblically accurate? Oh man, that, 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 that thought resonates with, with audiences. Millions and millions of people resonate with this message because we all identify with Jean Valjean, the sinner, and we want to identify with Jean Valjean, the sinner made good by being good. Now the last thing that the Apostle John would ever say is do good, be obedient, and redeem your life. He just said in verse 2 of chapter 2 that Jesus is the propitiation. He is the offering, the one acceptable offering for our sin. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And all the good works that we may do will not save us or transform our sin-infected hearts as a holy God requires. Real obedience is always going to be the fruit of a transformation that God has done for us. Not something we've done for God. As Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. The fruit of obedience. As we walk directionally over time on the trail of the will of God, always heading in his direction, we can look back at the the footsteps of our obedience. One, then another, and then another. And we see those as the evidence of a spiritual transformation that only God through Jesus could have done. We can take no credit for any of the obedience that is marking our life. True? True, Christian? We can take no credit for any of it. It's all pure grace. I can know that I'm real in part because I can look back at the obedience that has flown out, that has flowed out of my life because of my love for Jesus. Equally true on the flip side, John says in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Disobedience offers no assurance of transformation. In fact, a life marked in its overall direction by a walk of disobedience actually provides assurance that you're not saved. How do you like that for a thought? A professing Christian cannot experience high levels of assurance while he participates in low levels of obedience. Yeah? John then transitions into another thought in verse 5 by saying that obedience is actually one of the ways we express our love for God. Do you believe that? It really is true. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of or for God is perfected or accomplished. That's verse 5. 
John touches on what will become a major theme for him in this little epistle, and that is love for God and love for others as a proof of who's real and who's a fake. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about love as we go forward. In fact, we'll step into that topic in verse 7 and following of this chapter next time we're together. But for now, John says in verse 5 that whoever sincerely and lovingly keeps or obeys God's word, that's the man or the woman or the young person in whom love for God is truly being accomplished or expressed. You you no doubt notice that I have inserted in parentheses the word for there on your note page, love for God. This is because the Greek experts tell us that when John wrote this verse in Greek originally, he used an objective genitive form. I have no idea what objective genitive form means grammatically. All I know is that it means love for. For God as opposed to love of God. It's a better rendering of the verse. Love for God. Earlier we heard Jesus say in John 14, 15, If you love me, what? You're going to keep my commandments. That's going to be the evidence of your love for me. So Jesus says obedience will be an evidence that you love me. Not that I love you, but that you love me. John here in verse 5 is describing the genuine love that believer has for God as being accomplished or perfected as they keep his word. While the false teachers in John's day were saying that love for God was an emotional, mystical experience that you enter into by a, a higher level of knowledge, John would say, man, that is baloney. You love God with a lifelong walk of obedience in his direction. That's how you show God you love him. That's real. And then just in case it still isn't clear that obedience to God is a defining, conforming feature of the Christian life, John says at the end of verse 5, by this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. In short, brothers and sisters, obedience means looking more and more like who? Like the Lord Jesus who died for you. Obedience means looking more and more like Jesus, who over time, as he took the long walk, always was walking in God's direction. A life of obedience looks like the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't only our Savior and our Lord. Brothers and sisters, he is also our example. He's our model of what an obedient lifestyle, an obedient walk looks like. When we read about the way that he conducted his life, the way that he ordered his world, the the decisions that he made, the, the the, the, the priorities that he treasured, the habits that he cultivated, when we read in his word uh, about the company that he kept, the commands that he gave, the, the commands that he submitted to, he becomes the perfect prototype of what an obedient life looks like. We can do no better than to imitate Jesus, right? Does that mean that we imitate everything that Jesus did? No, no. In fact, 
uh, let me know when you can turn water into wine or walk on Lake Hemet or, <laughs> or raise the dead. Uh, no, we're not called upon to imitate everything that he did. Obviously, we're not going to be able to perfectly imitate Jesus' life since he never sinned and we sin every day, right? We do. Yet Jesus is the prototype. He's the pattern. He's the model that we're to pattern our lives after. He never veered off the path of obedience. He's the perfect example of a long walk in God's direction. At the bottom of your note page, a pastor from another age, Stephen Sharnock, said it well. Our conformity to Jesus consists not so much in an imitation of what he did as in obedience to what he commands. Some actions of Jesus are unimitatable, but all of his commands are obeyable. I like that. I think John would have loved that, that statement. On one occasion, Jesus put uh, a question to a crowd of people that was razor sharp. We already touched on it a moment ago. In Luke 6:46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? See, there are contradicting realities. Calling Jesus your Lord, your Savior, your Master, your Redeemer, and, not, and then not doing what he commands you to do. Those are contradictory realities. Brothers and sisters, may we never, ever have Jesus put that question to us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Are you, am I, the real deal. Are we? Real Christians in an unreal world. One of the ways that we will know and that others will know too is if we are on a lifelong walk with Jesus in God's direction. Obedient to his will and to his word and not with our lips but with our lives. Yeah? Let's pray together, church. Wow. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for talking straight to us today. We so need to hear this in, in, in a day and in a time of, of, of watered down, watered down statements and, 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 and verses from your word. We, we need to hear the truth. And we need you to expose our lives to the light of your truth. In this moment, your spirit perhaps may be convicting one or more in this room. There is a full-blown contradiction going on in someone's life and in their heart right now, calling you Lord, Lord, but living in complete contradiction to those words. Oh, for those who might be in such a place, Lord, we would just pray, Holy Spirit, be, be gentle, but be ruthless in bringing those persons back onto your path, back onto the Godward direction. Help us to be able to help them if that's what's required. Lord, for all of us, we all know, all of us know that we don't do life with you perfectly. And you know that. 
We thank you for the blood of Jesus, which covers the sin in our lives. May it be so, though, that the overall direction of our life is towards you, that we are running hard towards you. It will only be by your grace and through our faith in your son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Truly do love you. But only because you loved us first. And we say thanks in Jesus' great and holy name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.